Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. That's where we are, 1 Kings chapter 21. We're continuing in our series uh, in the life of Elijah. Here's the key concept for today. Beware the lust for stuff. Don't ask created things to do what only the Creator can. Before we get to our passage today, I'm going to give you a little test, a little quiz. Now, this is a silent quiz. Don't call out your answer. How would you complete this sentence? If I only had blank, then I would be happy. What goes into that blank? If we fill that blank with some description of a material possession and pin our hopes for fulfillment on some aspect of the creation rather than the Creator, we are inevitably drifting away from Him in so doing. But the reality is that you fight that every day, and so do I, because our culture is a culture that trains us to think that somehow we will be happy if we just have certain things. That more is better. That stuff will make me happy. I'll finally be fulfilled if I have that next possession. But nothing in creation has the ability to bring you ultimate satisfaction. No amount of money, no possession can ever be your Savior. Don't ask created things to do what only the Creator can do. And today, we're going to see King Ahab in a battle with contentment. He loses the battle. He struggles with coveting. And that's the sin that we're going to see alive in King Ahab after all that he has done as the nemesis of the prophet Elijah after all the pagan worship that he promoted and all the sins that he brought into the land of Israel, I find it ironic that the sin actually that tips him towards destruction is coveting. He breaks the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment goes like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But that's exactly what Ahab does. He covets. And before we get to the details of the story, it raises a question that all of us need to think about. And that question is this. When does normal desire, non-sinful desire, when does that rise to the level of sinful coveting? See, we all want things, right? We all have desires for our, our lives, and it's not bad to desire things in and of itself. But desire turns to coveting when what I desire is something that I have no right to have. And when my desire becomes an out-of-proportion controlling passion in my life, then coveting is at the door. If I just have to have that thing, I have to have that house, I have to have that car, I have to have that dress, I have to have that new phone or that new set of golf clubs or my life is going to be miserable. When that is the way we're thinking about stuff, desire has grown to sin. So before we get to our story, what do we know about coveting itself? It sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? It's an old-fashioned word. 
Is it really true that we moderns still need to worry about it? Very much so. Coveting is an invisible sin, at least for a while. You see, some sins are obvious, right? Uh, Some sins are outward. If I'm violent and if I'm angry, you see that right away. But envy and coveting happens on the inside. It's a sin of motivation. It's a sin of the heart. But God looks at the heart, and He's perfectly aware of sinful motivations even before they bubble to the surface. Secondly, coveting begins close to home. Note the the commandment warns us against coveting our neighbor's house, our neighbor's possessions. And in the story, we'll notice Ahab covets a nearby neighbor's possession. You see, we rarely covet that which is far away from us. Why? Because it seems so unattainable. It seems like we'll we'll never get it. It's out of reach. We might see something on TV and say, oh my, that would be nice. But the desire remains in bounds because it's so remote. But when it's nearby and when you see it every day, Satan can quickly turn the, it would be nice to, I can't live without it. And then we covet. Thirdly, coveting is what I call a root sin. What I mean by that is this. It's a sin from which other sins emerge. The flower of coveting may be theft. It may be cheating. It may be betrayal. And that's what we see in Ahab's story. The root of of coveting grows up to be the bitter fruit of betrayal and slander and murder. And the nemesis of Elijah goes downhill quickly. So let's pick up the reading. In chapter 21, start in verse 1. I'll read the first four verses. You follow along. It says this. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, uh, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard for a garden. Now it's not as if he didn't have other gardens. It's not as if he needed Naboth's property Archaeologists have excavated the palace of Ahab in Jezreel, and we see it to be an elaborate palace. It was immense. It was huge with all kinds of rooms and gardens and so forth, and this was just his summer palace. He didn't need Naboth's property, and so Naboth refused, and his refusal was not really about money. The king was offering him a fair price, evidently. It wasn't about finance or anything like that. It was about theology because possession and distribution of the land was part of the covenant between God and his people. The land that God gave them represented the family's portion of the promise of God here in the promised land. And it was to be perpetually occupied by the family that it was allotted to. Because this is an example, a tangible example of God's blessing to us. Us 
living here on this land, this is God's idea. idea. And when the nation was first invaded and then conquered, the, the tribes divided up the land, and then the tribes subdivided the land by clans and then to families. Every family in Israel had a plot of ground that they could call their own. This was God's way of taking care of them. And in Numbers 36, it says this, No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. This was God's idea and God's way of caring for his beloved people. The system that God put in place ensured that the property was not accumulated over time by the very few rich, but that everybody had a place. The pagan kings, that's what they did. They took whatever they wanted. But in the land of Israel, it was to be governed this way. Ahab knew that what he was asking for was wrong. But the root sin of coveting had taken place, and it flowered into rebellion against the way that God had ordered the society for his people. And so Naboth rightly refused, and the king went home and sulked. And into that scene walks Jezebel, the queen. Now, Jezebel is not an Israelite. She doesn't care a bit about the inheritance laws that God has put in place to protect the rights of the little people. She doesn't care about the little people. And so Jezebel responds to King Ahab. Pick up the reading in verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said, this, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters that she had written to them. Go down to verse 15. As soon as uh, Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but is dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Jezebel's plan is simple. She'll simply act in such a way that eliminates Naboth, and we learn later in the Scriptures, also his sons, so that there's no family interference with her ability to give this vineyard to the king. And so she takes some of Ahab's stationery. She writes to the elders of the city in Ahab's name and openly plots both deception and murder. The officials are asked to come together for a fast. Now, that may sound strange. We would think you come together for a feast. They're coming together for a fast. And in that language, what, we, what we're meant to understand is they would have been thinking there's something terrible that's happened or is about to happen. And so we're being called together, fasting from eating food, being called together to plead with God or the gods to, to help us out in, in this time of tragedy. There's some civic emergency. And so they come and they gather. And it's shocking how quickly they obey the queen's command. The seating arrangement puts Naboth in the middle where everybody can see him. 
They line up some thugs to say that they have heard him committing blasphemy and and committing treason. This evidently is what the emergency is all about. Now they're learning why we're coming together and fasting from food. Naboth has done something bad. It needs to be dealt with, and that's all it takes. It's a little bit of testimony, and Naboth is killed. It shows you how corrupt the morals of the, of the elders of the city had become. And it also shows you how feared the woman Jezebel was. was. Naboth is framed, convicted, and executed. And as you read on to 2 Kings chapter 9, we learn that's not what's not mentioned here is that all of his sons are also executed. So there was no family to claim that plot of land. Jezebel is true to her word. With Don Corleone-like ruthlessness, she takes care of the scene. And then casually informs Ahab, you can go take ownership of that vineyard now. Now, with all of that in mind, listen to these verses from Proverbs. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. Seven things that the Lord hates. Jezebel is seven for seven. And Ahab with her. Seven for seven. And God does not allow abominations like this to go unpunished. God has been watching this entire sordid affair. The king and the queen think that somehow they've gotten away with it. They're no doubt feeling good in the way that they can manipulate the situation. Jezebel can simply snap her fingers and people will do what she wants, even if what she wants is evil and wrong. She has that kind of power. The king and the queen thought that they had tied up all the loose ends, cleaned up all the evidence, that things would never be traced back to them. They don't have to worry because the entire family is wiped out. But there was a witness to everything they did, a witness who will not forget and who will not relent. The one true God saw it all. And God tells Elijah the whole story and says, Ahab is right now on Naboth's property thinking that he's gotten away with all of this. I want you to go down there and you tell him that I was watching and that judgment is coming. And we pick up the reading in verse King, uh, 1 Kings 21, verse 20. This is what Elijah says. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Verse 23. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. In other words, Ahab, disaster is at the door. Your kingly line is over. Your lineage is going to end. Your wife will be eaten by scavenger dogs, and the dead of your family who die out in the country will not even be given a burial. Their bodies will be picked on by the birds. And all this is going to happen. But then there's a twist. Ahab humbles himself before God. 1 Kings 21, 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Now, I read that as I was going through the story. I said to myself, how can that be? You're kidding me? After all that Ahab has done, after bringing the worship of pagan gods into the land, at, at promoting that more than any other king before him, marrying outside of the faith, face and outside of, of Israel and Jezebel, promoting her pagan gods, leading the country into a situation where God sent a drought for three years and there was famine. And all of this, he never repented. He never relented. Even with the demonstration of God's power on Mount Carmel, Ahab didn't care. Ahab didn't, didn't say, uh, he humble himself in that, in that situation. After all of this, it seems to me that Ahab deserves the punishment that God says is coming. But God looks at him, humbling himself, and he relents. He has compassion. I'm thinking to myself, why is God showing compassion to Ahab? The reason is because that's who God is. God is true to his nature. And in his nature, he is loving and compassionate. And we should rejoice in that fact. See, way back in Exodus 34, when Moses was up on the mountain getting the second copy of the Ten Commandments, there is a situation where God introduces himself to Moses, and he describes himself this way, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is God describing himself to Moses. And that description of God shows up in the Bible over and over again. I counted nine times where those words are used to describe God in the Bible. It is the most often repeated and quoted passage throughout the Bible. God describing himself in those terms. Now, he goes on to say that he will punish the guilty. But that's not where he starts. He doesn't start with punishment in mind. He starts with compassion in mind. The essence of who he is is gracious and loving, and God is true to himself. In other words, God wants to forgive. He wants to forgive. Don't ever fear asking forgiveness from God. Don't ever let Satan say to you, listen, you've asked God too many times to forgive you for that. So don't ask him anymore. God is true to himself. God is true to his essence. And his essence is compassion. He wants to forgive. When John the Apostle writes, God is love, all John is doing is paying attention to what God says about himself. So here in this situation, God, true to his nature, says, I am going to show compassion to Ahab. Even after all that he has done, I'm going to show him compassion because of his repentance. But what God also knows is that Ahab's repentance is short-lived. It's not going to last. And everything that has been pronounced will eventually happen. Fast forward with me three years. Three years later, Ahab has long since forgotten about his repentance. Ahab the king in the north teams up with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they go to war. 
And in spite of the fact that Ahab takes off his kingly regalia and dresses up like a regular soldier so that no one will know he's the king and so that he's not a target in the battle, despite that, he is still killed in the battle. This all happens in chapter 22. And in the middle of chapter 22, verse 37, a point is made, and the dogs lick his blood as it pours out of him. His closest sons both die in quick succession after that. And that leaves Queen Esther. And the the prophet had been specific that dogs would devour the body of Queen Esther. And Jehu, who we met last week, who who Elijah has uh, anointed as the successor king, Jehu learns that Jezebel is in the tower in Jezreel. The king is dead, her sons, the sons are dead, and, he, and it's his time to take the reins of the nation. And so she, he goes to Jezreel. She's up in the tower hiding. No doubt she feels secure there. But I want to I pick up the reading for you in, uh, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 9 where it says this. He's, he's, he's calling up to the tower and he says, Jehu says, he looked up at the window and called out. This is 932. Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. And Jehu, the, Jehu then says, well, I need to go to lunch. Exactly what he does. He goes inside to have something to eat. And while he's having something to eat, he thinks to himself, well, you know, really we should go do something about the body of that evil queen out there. And so pick up the reading in verse 35. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, her hands. They went back and told Jehu who said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at, at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground, uh, on the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Jehu steps into the leadership that Elijah had anointed him towards, and he kills all the rest of Ahab's sons. He beheads them all. There were 70. 70 are beheaded, and the lineage of Ahab is ended. And the prophecy of Elijah comes to pass exactly as was foretold approximately three years earlier. So ends the line of Ahab. And what point does this make? It makes this. God does not play. He wants to show mercy. He's oriented to mercy. Compassion is his default position. But he will not be played with. He will not be a puppet on our string like Ahab thought he would be. Circle back with me to coveting. It all comes back to that moment when for Ahab, he just had to have that vineyard of Naboth. We have an amazing capacity to rationalize, to justify our attitudes and actions that we know really don't belong in our lives, but somehow we allow these root sins, these sins of motivation to come into our hearts So we today need to fight against coveting because, as I said, our society teaches us that this is the way we will find fulfillment. But God looks at the heart. He sees when we are sinning in that way. So how do we fight coveting? Here's some strategies. Number one, guard your heart. 
The lust for more stuff is easy to creep into our minds and our heart. We can easily begin to think that if I accumulate more stuff, somehow I'll look more successful, I'll seem more important in the eyes of people. Beware the tendency of what I call the sideways glance of comparison, looking at others, looking at your neighbors and saying, oh, I need to make sure it looks like I'm getting ahead in the race of life. Listen, that race is the rat race. You do not need to be in that race. Guard your heart. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In other words, what you have is God. Be content. Secondly, be a giver. Nothing cuts away the cancer of coveting like developing the discipline of giving. Seeing needs, meeting needs, develop that muscle of generosity, exercise that muscle of generosity to say, I I can help that person. I can help that cause. I can help that ministry. Be a giver. Thirdly, be grateful. Be grateful for what you have. Ahab lived in a palace. He had everything he could possibly want, yet he wanted more. One more thing. Be grateful. Here's a trick that I've learned that really helps me uh, develop an attitude of gratitude, and that is this. In my, home, <clears throat> in my home, every once in a while, I sit in a chair that I usually don't sit in. You say, what is that all about? You know, we all have our habits, right? You probably have a favorite chair that you sit in all the time. But if you sit in a different chair and look at your home in a different way, in a new perspective, you begin to see what God has done. In a new way. The thing that we take for granted, that we walk past. I see that in a new way and I say, thank you, God, for what you've given me. Thank you for the way that you've protected. Thank you for the way that you've cared. Sit in a different chair with a new perspective if it reminds you that God has been gracious to us. George Herbert writes this prayer. Lord Jesus, you have given so much to me. Give me one more thing, a grateful heart. Give me that one more thing. If you don't know where to start in your battle against coveting, start there. Start there. That's the battle. Every day, pray that prayer. Lord, give me one more thing today, a grateful heart. We can avoid the sin of Ahab, the sin of coveting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great provider. Jehovah Jireh, forgive us for the times that we grow complacent, we, we grow to take to, for granted the things that we already have, thinking that we need more, more, and more. Lord, even today, as we're home, while we're watching television, there will be the commercials that were advertised in a way that makes us think, somehow I'll be better if I just have that stuff. Lord, we pray that you give us contentment and gratitude. Keep us away from coveting. Allow us to be people who are so freed from the flow of our society that we are obviously different for Jesus. Help us do that, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.